This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Can you dig it? You are now listening to the latest episode of the Do Not Listen to This Podcast. I am Sam LaCrosse, your host. You are now listening to, like I said, the Do Not Listen to This Podcast, the latest version of the Do Not Listen to This Podcast until I come out with an episode, hopefully next week. So um, it's it's weird because like, you know, I, I told you guys, like I'm just recording, like I'm just starting out with this new podcasting thing. I've kind of just been recording this with a $30, I mean, not even $30, like $15 mic, bought two of them for a combined $30 on Amazon, just sitting in my bedroom closet talking to myself, which is kind of an, an odd thing when you really think about it. Um, I, I, at least I think it's odd. It's just kind of just me being in, you know, again, by myself in a very bizarre part of my apartment that I was able to convert into an office and, you know, kind of a window half open, no heat on because I can't afford the heat, all that other stuff. So, um, but it's good to be back here. It is very, very good to be back here. And I think, you know, it's a kind of a, it's been a weird week. I think we have a lot of weird weeks nowadays, but I mean, I think it's actually been calmer in the last, uh, since the last couple of weeks, which I don't know if is really saying much anymore, given like, I don't think, you know, in a normal civilized society, we should expect, you know, violence or, you know, people being, you know, douchebags and assholes and whatever people on social media and stuff. Well, that's probably gonna happen anyway, but um, you know, it's just been a bizarre last couple of weeks and this week was kind of quiet, you know, especially with something as big as a presidential inauguration happening on Wednesday with the uh, introduction and inauguration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris as the, uh, president and the vice president respectively. And it was, um, you know, obviously weird because, you know, normally I, I really was only cognizant of the one inauguration of, uh, president Trump back in 2016. And I remember it was a really you know, not in the non-COVID times, it was like a huge deal. There were a bunch of people, obviously like John Legend and people were at Joe Biden and Kamala Harris's inauguration, but you know, there was a crowd there, there was like pauses for applause. And it was just kind of a, uh, it was, it was really bizarre to see like a, a truly, like a, a truly in, influential and impactful moment without the, just the normal fanfare that it deserves from having a new leader of the free world be put into public office, which is, you know, it's kind of, you know, which is weird because I mean, there was a bunch of security there because of the, the whole Capitol building snafu that happened um, a couple weeks ago, which was, which was very bad. And, you know, obviously they didn't want to repeat that. Plus the whole, you know, the COVID thing, even with the vaccine rolling out, we're still being very cautious with this thing, which I think is probably 
the best way to go, especially considering the age of the current president. And, you know, he could be affected by this. We just saw, you know, the former president be affected by this and everything. And, you know, we had a bunch of people that, you know, we passed the, unfortunately, we passed the 400,000 death mark a couple days, days or weeks ago, I think it was. And that's, you know, that's obviously very sad. So taking precautions, I just, you know, it's been very odd, you know, just times, but actually it was a very calm week. It was a very calm ceremony that I thought was happening. And I thought, you know, it was just kind of a nice change of pace from the uh, normal darkness that we have been facing throughout the last, really since, you know, COVID hit about a year ago. I think it was a couple days ago where the first confirmed case of COVID-19 in the United States was discovered. And of course, we really didn't know that that was literally patient zero and we would just be exploding with this thing and everything was going on. So, um, you know, it was a, it was a nice calm ceremony, I thought. And there was no really, I mean, obviously there was outrage because people on the, uh, on the right and on the left are going to outrage about everything when they don't get what they want because they're children and they don't want to, uh, just kind of own up to the fact that they are children and they think they're all self-righteous and all the bullshit that they say, but it's just kind of, you know, it was, it was relatively peaceful, I thought. And I don't really go on social media much. I really don't, you know, I don't get into YouTube rabbit holes. I don't, I don't have a Twitter account anymore. So that stuff obviously helps, but in these last, well, if we want to say the last year, because the last year of being the first COVID case, we'll just say the last year-ish. So in the last year-ish, I mean, there's been a lot of dark things that have happened in our society, and it's been very, very scary. But I often say that there's a lot to learn from the darkness within humanity. This is called, um, Dan Crenshaw called this perspective from darkness in his book, which is also great, Fortitude on Amazon. It's really good. Um, like, a, obviously conservative politician, but I think it's actually very fair up until probably the last chapter. The last chapter is probably the most political, but overall, it's a very excellent book. So, and this is called Perspective from Darkness, according to Gan Crenshaw, but there's, I think it's very true. I mean, there's a lot to learn from the darkness within humanity. Some of our greatest lessons have come from, and greatest societal reforms, to be honest with you, have come from our darkest parts in our history. And that comes with great improvement in our society and in our history. Because I think we can all say, even though our history is not perfect and our society currently is not perfect, we have a lot to do in a lot of different areas and we will always have a lot to do in a lot of different areas because new problems, to quote Mark Manson, problems don't get, I mean, you don't, God, fuck, I just totally butchered that quote. Um, the society, the goal of a society and the goal of a person should be to look for better problems, not to get rid of problems, because there's no such thing as getting rid of problems. And that is the improvement of a self and of a society, is if we can learn from the failures and the trauma of our past, both collectively and as individuals, and try to make better from that in the future. So this perspective from darkness and the darkness within humanity, it can teach us more about ourselves and human nature than the light within humanity and our successes because success can lead to hubris and hubris doesn't really lead to very good things in most cases. So, so for an example of this, without further ado, I'm actually going to bring a friend onto this podcast and his friend, my friend is named Patrick Bateman. But, okay, so he's not really my friend, although he would be really interesting at parties and um, a bunch of things with high fancy profile people. If you guys know who Patrick Bateman is, you're going to, um, you know this already. But um, he is actually a character in a movie called American Psycho, and I'll get into that in a couple of minutes, but he's not really my friend, but I do want to say he's my friend just so I can say that. But I do think that doing a character analysis of this iconic character, we can dive just a little bit deeper within the confines of ourselves in order to stifle what I believe is a very troubling trend within our culture. So, like I said before, 
Patrick Bateman is the lead character in the novel American Psycho by Brett Easton Ellis, who was one of the great fiction writers of the last 25 years in American culture. Although, however, a lot of you are probably much more familiar with the excellent film version directed by Mary Heron with the equally excellent Christian Bale portraying Bateman that was made in 2000. However, I want to focus on the Ellis version because I think his undercurrents throughout the novel shape the direction of where this conversation needs to flow in order to gain a full understanding. Additionally, the movie is based on the book, and I think most people would agree that books are better than movies. The movies can kind of portray like the image of the book better in some cases, but I think that the, the book and the original source material is generally the way to go with a lot of this stuff with analysis of these things. So Ellis's trademark style is satire, black humor, that kind of stuff, which he, with, which he often takes to extremes with incredibly dark, depressing, and violent acts and behaviors. And among these acts and behaviors include murder, nihilism, and self-loathing, among other important features of the human condition. And Ellis identifies as a postmodernist, so basically he is against the current, his literary form, I should say, is against the modern power structures of society. So a postmodernist and a modernist, the difference between those things is modernists believe in that there are definitive rules and structures to society. And a postmodernist believes that everything is kind of socially constructed. It's all kind of based on this person is either a powerful, powerful person, excuse me, or a non-powerful person. They want to upend the established order and replace it with something else. We have seen, so a good example of this, if you guys have seen The Dark Knight, is a, the Joker is a postmodernist. He doesn't believe in social structures and hierarchies at all. And Batman is the defender of those structures in society. He is the modernist. So it's kind of like the ultimate order, I wouldn't say ultimate order, but order and chaos kind of going against one another in extreme fashions. So Ellis, in literary form, identifies as a postmodernist. So he wanted to turn the norms of society on its head and use his characters to push the envelopes of these institutions and structures just to see how far they could bend. Now, you know, I don't think most people, including myself, especially myself, are not fans of postmodernism in real life, but I think it's incredibly entertaining in fiction. And there's a reason why people romanticize it. We love the characters like the Joker, and we love the characters like the new Joker, and we love the characters that was played by Joaquin Phoenix. And we like these people that kind of push the boundaries of what we think society can take. At least, at least I do. Maybe that's a weird kind of, you know, fictional fetish that I have or something. I don't know. But so... In his creation of Patrick Bateman, Ellis took aim at one of the most contemptible and widely hated groups in society with people who shared his viewpoint. Yuppies. So, Ellis made this book, I believe, about 10 to 15 years before the movie came out in 2000. So, I think the, the early 1990s, I think it was 1991, he made American Psycho. So, yuppies, which is a slang word for young urbanized professional was a word coined in the 1980s and 90s to describe the massive expansion of influence and wealth by young people during one of the great economic booms in the modern history, which is about 1981 to the late 1980s, about 1987, I think was the last of the really big boom before we took it into the 90s. So after the economic turmoil and stagnation of the 1970s with the gas crisis and all the other stuff that happened there and the post-Reaganomics era of the early 1980s, the ambition to, to quote-unquote become something was running really high and wide for young people across America. There became a bizarre dire desire to wear a tailored suit while working in a cubicle crunching numbers 500 feet above the ground. Italian fashion designers soon became to become mainstream talk around the water cooler. And prostitutes became the norm, among other things. So Ellis, seeing the obvious hilarity and shallowness of this movement, decided to craft a character to bludgeon it. He wanted to cut it out at the knees and get people to wake up to what actually was happening in the world, to get focused on our real problems again. 
There's no nobility in investment banking, according to Ellis. You shouldn't be celebrated for making corporations more wealthy, thought Ellis. You should be celebrating for actually doing something, not expanding on things already done. So, in typical postmodernist fashion, Ellis crafted a monster that exposed everything he loathed about these corrupted institutions and characters. Ellis crafted Patrick Bateman. Patrick Bateman is everything about the yuppie movement taken to excess. Bateman is a wealthy 27-year-old Harvard Business School graduate who works as the vice, president of an, the vice president of an investment bank in Manhattan. He lives in the American Gardens building on the 11th floor. Tom Cruise is his neighbor. Bateman details his life down to the fine points. He has an extensive exercise routine. He can do 1,000 stomach crunches specifically. Eats to perfection and has a bathroom stocked with bath and body products to protect his self-image. Bateman is everything the yuppie movement exemplified. Handsome, successful, and wealthy. All to a T. But Bateman is also the worst of what the yuppie movement tried to, tried to disguise. Bateman is shallow beyond belief. He blows his wealth on meaningless consumerist spending, such as several dozen suits, watches, other accessories, that type of things. He eats food that no sane person would consider paying for on the daily, just because he can. He's an alcoholic, a drug addict, and a sex fiend. All of his friends are exactly like him, to the point where Bateman confuses their identities from one another. One reason being that he doesn't care enough to tell them apart, the other because they're all blinded by the same light that they think is leading them down the proper path in life. There's no good bathroom to do coke in, one of them says. I saw that bastard in his office spinning a menorah, says another as he tries to make a Jew joke at a co-worker's expense, not knowing that you, indeed, do not spin a menorah, but a dreidel. Only $570, Bateman and his colleagues say at, at lunch as they throw their corporate cards down on a gold adorned plate. But, like most people who live this type of lifestyle, Bateman hates himself. He's incredibly empty and hollow and sad. And he knows it. He's incredibly mentally unhealthy, to the point where he succumbs to fits of uncontrollable anger and rage when he hits right bottom, which, rock bottom, which is quite often. Oh, and by the way, I forgot to tell you that he's a serial killer. And there's, that's the reason why Ellis named the book American Psycho. So, to cope with his empty lifestyle and his endless pit of nihilistic desires, Bateman emotionally overcompensates by slaughtering people in incredibly brutal and grotesque ways. So, for example, he kills a homeless man and his dog because he believes him to be inferior. Get a goddamn job, Al, he says. He stores corpses of prostitutes in his closet. He seduces a co-worker back to his apartment and murders him with an axe because he has an account that he wants to work on and a business card that looks better than his. Other methods of his madness include cannibalism, necrophilia, rape, and torture. So Patrick Bateman, if you haven't caught on by this point, is an absolute monster. I don't think I've come upon a character in fiction that is worse than him. He is so perfect in many respects, but the bad far outweighs the good, obviously. But perhaps the most illuminating part of both Ellis and Heron's Bateman is that in the very first minutes of the film, where Bateman is finishing his tedious and time-consuming morning routine, as he begins to strip his patented herb mint facial mask from his face, Bateman narrates his own perception on his own existence. There is an idea of a Patrick Bateman, some kind of, an, of, of extraction, some kind of abstraction. But there is no real me, only an entity, something illusory. And even though I can hide my cold gaze, and you can shake my hand and feel flesh gripping yours, and maybe you can even sense that our lifestyles are probably comparable, I am simply not there. Now, even though Patrick Bateman is as wretched of a human being as you can come to comprehend, he oddly enough reminds me a lot of what I'm seeing in terms of cultural trends. If I had to pin down one thing about Bateman that would reign supreme over all else, I would say that Bateman is a raging narcissist. He only cares about himself. 
He is so obsessed with his image, self-image and making himself superior all the time that he just simply disregards anything that gets in the way of that image. When he fails to do this, he takes action by murdering people in horrific fashion. To me, in some kind of bizarre way, in terms of the self-image, obviously the, the, the killing people with the axe and the nail gun and all the other things, this sounds a lot like influencer culture in the modern world. And so, like I said, hopefully without the chainsaws and the nail guns. From fitness accounts to lifestyle bloggers to makeup tutorials, it all boils down to one thing. Narcissism. And lots of narcissism. We humans are naturally ambitious and curious creatures. We're programmed by evolution and our default caveman settings to progress in society and put ourselves in the best position for success. Like I said earlier, perspective from darkness. And as we break into the midpoint of the first month of 2021, a little bit past it actually, I keep hearing and seeing as I filter through this narcissism of people wanting to love themselves more. It's a reasonable thing to strive to, and an admirable one in some cases. 2020 was a hard year, as you don't need me to remind you. The problem is that not a lot of people know what love is. I'm not sure even I do. We're so young, speaking to the general demographic of people who read and actually listen to this thing other than my parents, so mom and dad, if you are listening to this thing or reading this thing, I'm, I, this, I am not talking to you, unfortunately. Love you guys. Um, I'm not sure that we could understand it in the depth even if we tried. We can ask about it, read about it, watch shows about it, whatever. Looking something from afar is not akin to experiencing it for yourself, much like most things in the world are. The way I see it, and more on this later, there are two forms of quote-unquote love that get propagated, one of passion and one of stability. The one of passion is the one that gets all the hype and attention. This is the one that influencer culture sells to people via Instagram and YouTube. Do this routine and you'll be like me. Sell all your possessions and move to California. Nothing bad will happen there. Drop your only disposable income, which if you move to California won't be much likely, on a Kylie Jenner makeup kit. You'll be beautiful. Now there are nothing necessarily wrong with these things. What is troubling about them is the frequency in which we absorb them and the amount of weight that we let them carry around with us. We're bombarded with them constantly. We're told indirectly to sell our souls and our wallets for vanity, to follow in the footsteps of all those who we wrongfully idolize. And for what? Fulfillment? So you can be just like an influencer? So what do they even do exactly? Well, without the chainsaws and the nail guns, they're probably a lot like Patrick Bateman. I truly cannot name a single one of those people who I envy. Dan Bilzerian is the common one for guys, and he's just about as soulless as you can imagine. Do I think some of the women he pays to hang out with him are hot? Sure I do. What I want to delude myself, Patrick Bateman style, with people who don't really like me and wealth, it doesn't mean anything to me because I have so much of it. So in the words of the great Randy Jackson, that's a no for me, dog. The other, the one of stability, is the one I believe that we should be chasing. It has some of the things above, although hopefully Dan Bilzerian is nowhere near them, but it focuses on other things. It is important that we move more towards this one versus the other one. Passion is dangerous. However, stability is harder to understand because we're so used to Disney movies and Jay Alvarez fucking it up for us. But it's very important that we do understand it. The reason for that is, when applied to ourselves, they can be incredibly detrimental to our well-being. One leads to self-love, the other leads to self-lies. Lying is perhaps one of the worst vices you can take part in as a human being. It's even worse when you do it to yourself. So remember, the non-tyrannical collective must begin with the non-tyrannical self. Lying is one of the pillars of tyranny. I would advise against doing so. So in order to navigate this dichotomy, we will first be going into the two types of love named above, as well as going into the very specific research on them that are backed by psychology. We will then discuss why the first type, passion, is unsustainable, and why the second one, stable, is the one we should go after in both our relationship with ourselves and our relationship with other people. Or, hopefully you can improve them to where you don't feel like you need to behead someone to them and rhythm to Huey Lewis in the news, like Patrick Bateman did, so hopefully we can at least get to beyond that point.
So, if you're what I think you are and you're not a fan of Axe Murders or the song Hip to Be Square by Huey Lewis in the News, a good place to start would be to ask yourself some questions about how you perceive love. But first, as per usual, some definitions. According to the dictionary, the two most foremost definitions of love are, quote-unquote, a strong affection of another arising out of kinship or personal ties and, quote, attraction based on sexual desire, affection and tenderness felt by lovers, end quote. Is it leaning more towards the Bateman-slash-influencer style of the equation or more towards something else? Is it controlled by narcissism and vanity, or do you think something else is pulling the strings? I think all of us genuinely want the latter of those two answers, but I think it's very easy to get pulled into the culture of the chase. There is a reason why there are people on social media that are famous that should be nowhere near so. The reason is that they know what human nature does to all of us. While they may not be students of evolutionary biology in the human brain, they certainly know how to manipulate it for their gain. I don't think they do it maliciously, but they definitely do it to make money, because money makes the world go round, you see. From all angles, it seems to be much easier to be some, become seduced by that style of quote-unquote love than the other side. Why is this? Well, I mean, I don't think it's truly the genuine weakness of human beings, because human beings are quite strong. We're a resilient bunch. It takes a not lot to knock us down, as proven by our extensive history of humankind. I pondered this question for a long time when thinking about this topic. Sex sells, and everything that triggers that primal impulse into us feeds into its input as well. And, as we just stated, no one seems immune. No matter who you are, we're all still cognitively triggered by the same bullshit. Old men still look at hot younger women in the gyms. Younger women generally don't care how old men are compared to themselves. They believe that he is uh, properly conducting himself. All people are attracted to money, at least on impulse. Social status is desired in some form or fashion by nearly everyone as well. It just is a matter of which hierarchy you choose to partake in. It seems that, no matter the identity, people are all attracted to the same things on first impulse. I believe this is why we say the word quote-unquote attracted when, some th when describing someone in, or it's something we find desirable. We feel some type of pull to it. It locks us in like a Death Star-style tractor beam with no chance of jumping into light speed. But yet, it never seems to last. We fall out of taste with these things rather quickly. There are many reasons for this, in my estimation. These things are quite common. There is a lot of money in circulation. A lot of people have clout in one way or another, and there are a lot of attractive people in the world in which we live. There's a lot to go around, so we get bored of, bored of it after a while. Our evolutionary brains tell us to move on to the next shiny object we see floating through our orbitals. And this is exactly how influencer culture works. The business model is to keep throwing the shiny things in front of your eyes so that you keep getting pulled into their own personal Death Star. They can't just take a trip to Fiji and do a four-part vlog about it. They have to follow up it up with a trip to Bora Bora three months later. They can't just live their life. They have to document it on film. They can't just show one workout of Olympic lifting. They have to switch it up all the time to keep it fresh, even if it's not teaching how to build fun functional strength. This is exactly the opposite of creating stability. It's the epitome of variety, which is the spice of death. The human mind can only comprehend so many things without suffering a Death Star-esque implosion that completely, and completely erodes any traction of getting to someplace meaningful. So, as we've seen so far, we're all pulled in initially by the same things, but we're constantly pulled in different directions by more of those same things. It's an incredibly paradoxical phenomenon, so it's no wonder why people, especially younger folks, are highly confused by it. We want one thing, at least we say we do, but are so easily seduced by the other. Love makes us happy, at least in our estimation, but we don't seem to have a good grasp on what it is. So, when you're confused about something going on in your brain, it's always a good plug for Jonathan Haidt. So Jonathan Haidt, for all those who you don't know who he is, is one of the world leaders in the field of psychology, who has written on everything from the difference between liberals and conservatives to the softening of the minds of America's young people to the role disgust plays in navigating our relationships with other humans. He's one of the smartest people I've ever encountered. I cite him in my material quite frequently. 
Additionally, as a matter, member of the infla, infamous intellectual dark web, he's a constant advocate of free and unadulterated speech across all mediums of communication. He says what he means and means what he says. However, the reason that Haidt got famous is not because of any of the reasons listed above. The reason that Jonathan Haidt became a powerhouse in the field of psychology was because he wrote the most definitive book on understanding happiness of the last 25 years. Just ask Martin Seligman, fellow psychological powerhouse and the founder of learned helplessness theory and positive psychology. Those are two pretty big, pretty big things. For the reader who seeks to understand happiness, my advice is begin with Haidt. So Haidt, using a whopping amount of analysis ranging from his own personal studies as a university professor at the University of Virginia, among others, to the texts of just about every religion imaginable, began to weave together his own personal findings on happiness. His goal was to eventually create a framework and an essential explanation for the happiness and our pursuit of it. He eventually finished the project and published The Happiness Hypothesis in 2006, and that would be the, the quote-unquote most definitive book on understanding happiness the last 25 years of thing I mentioned earlier. So while it's not a hard read, the book is very dense. It's a lot of in-depth material that covers a lot of very complicated ideas and issues. However, when finished, it's hard to argue that what most of Haidt points out is wrong. The amount of research and wisdom cited and properly placed in the confines of the book's pages creates an airtight lock in what Haidt deems a straightforward path to what the aforementioned Seligman named authentic happiness. So the book, and Haidt's corresponding hypothesis, deals with the topics of the division of self, reciprocity, ultrasociality, and divinity, among others. However, the chapter that most stood out to me was a chapter entitled Love and Attachments. And this is where Haidt provides a solution on our dilemma on love. So beginning with experimentation from attachment psychologists such as Harry Harlow, who taught Abraham Maslow, the hierarchy of needs guy, John Bowlby, and Mary Ainsworth, Haidt begins the chapter by talking about the, necessarily the necessary development of human attachment in mammals for proper development. In order to properly develop, we need consistent attachments to things that provide us with the thriving environment, the most notable examples of this being our mothers. Without that attachment, we are left adrift. But attachment takes time and effort, you see. Being a mom is not a sometimes thing, it's an all-the-time thing. The same is true with fatherhood. You can't just turn it off like a light switch. The same is true with any friendship that you care about nurturing. Consistent contact is, is and must be a key if you want to keep that relationship at its proper place in its early stages. Early development, as, the most, as with most things, sets the foundation for that relationship and the eventual attachment that comes with it. But attachment is different from love. Love is different, and it's essential to our culture. In Haidt's cited research, 88% of societies that were surveyed defined romantic love between two partners as essential to the culture and the fabric of their society. This claim led Haidt to investigate the research of Ellen Burscheid and Elaine Walster, two of the foremost psychologists in the study of love. It was here where Haidt made his breakthrough. According to Burscheid and Walster, there are two types of love, passionate and companionate. As defined by the two women, the definition for, for passionate love is a wildly emotional state in which tender and sexual feelings, elation and pain, anxiety and relief, altruism and jealousy coexist in a confusion of feelings. Conversely, the, defi the definition for companionate love is the affection we feel for those with whom our lives are deeply intertwined. So, to me, those sound similar to the definitions that we started out with when we talked about the definitions of love. Passionate love is a drug, quite literally. It triggers the same parts of the brain as heroin, believe it or not, and it is involved with the releasing of dopamine, the pleasure chemical of the brain. It wears off. No high can stay, no matter how many bath salts you snort or how many porn videos you watch. Companionate love, on the other hand, grows slowly. Height describes this relationship not like a hit of your fla favorite flavor of opiate, but like vines twisting together over time. 
It builds slowly, but it's very hard to break when it does so properly. The graphs that were released from this research show this phenomenon perfectly. Passionate love peaks much higher than companion love, but it crashes in the opposite direction in about six months. It also never regains its strength. Frankly, it's not even close. Companionate love, however, builds over time, as does any relationship. Attachment, while not love, is the foundation for how we learn to love things properly. It is this necessity of attachment early on in our years of lives and relationships that lays the bricks for the blueprints of our future. Okay, so that was a lot. So what does it all mean? To me, it comes down to one things. Or one, not one things, one thing, not one things. To me, it all comes down to one thing. Realistic expectations. There is a reason why Disney movies, Hollywood, influencers, and social media are successful. They prey on our easy seduction of passion. But are these things realistic? The answer, surprisingly, is yes. We all have the potential to find love and unique things, influence people in one way or another, and share our lives with our friends. And that is the key to this whole fucking thing. That's why these people have us hooked. They're drug dealers. They're feeding us little, hopes, little hits of dopamine so that we chase more of it. These things, in general, teach us nothing about the value of companionship, at least in the main arc of whatever story they're selling or trying to tell. And this is crucial to the understanding of how we should treat ourselves and other people. If we chase passion, we chase highs. We eventually keep on climbing the hill and we don't think that the hill is eventually going to go downward. We become akin to Jay Gatsby, constantly reaching out towards the green light at the end of the dock, and we all know how that turned out. But compassionate love and companionship is different. That is sustainable. That is what lasts. That is a passion that has grown into love through tumultuous work throughout the trials and tribulations of life. It is the opposite of narcissism. Rather, it is giving so much of yourself that you become entwined with that other entity, much like the Vines and Heights analogy. We are drawn in by passion, but passion does not last. Only by following passion with steps toward detachment can we maintain the balance to achieve love. This methodology is a must-use if we want to avoid lying to ourselves and chasing the highs of life. And this is something that Patrick Bateman did not understand. You need to have attachments to people in order to find fulfillment. There's a reason why this, there is only a, an abstraction of Patrick Bateman. And that reason is because Patrick Bateman does not exist. He's a false idol, a facade, projected onto the world with no true identity to derive value from. And the same is true with our relationship to ourselves and our identities. If we do not attach ourselves to who we are as people, most notably our values and what we find meaningful as individuals, then we truly are not practicing self-love. We are only practicing self-lies. Our identities are the core to who we are as people, not some false attainment that some influencer claims to say so is on Twitter. The key distinction, and the key virtue to truly seek, is the cutoff point between passion and companionate love, much like the two definitions from the dictionary stated earlier. So, as shown by the research above, and what should be our own common sense, really, passionate love is not really the right version of love that we should be chasing, especially with ourselves. Passion corrupts and deludes. It does not enhance, at least in the long term. And, as such, given that we're wired for the long term through evolution in our own societal structures, it would be best for us if we should stray from this new normal that we find ourselves shaped into by the echo chambers of media to adopt the right method. But, as we always say on this platform, that is simple, but not always easy. There are always distractions and things that brain hack us into adopting the same patterns and behaviors, as evidenced by influencer and pop culture. Passion is everywhere, and passion floods the brain with dopamine which therefore floods us with nonsensical fast brain reasoning that makes us fall into the same traps over, all over and over again. Since the fast brain is indeed fast, the slow brain must always be in the back of our minds, pun intended. 
It's hard to give my thoughts on this matter, seeing as the fast brain is much more capable than words and all that type in this post. But I think there are several things to keep in mind while perusing our world that makes it so easy to fall into these traps. The first reason that passionate love should not be the objective is that it's based on false indicators. The start of any relationship, if you remember, is attachment. It starts first with our parents, and more specifically our moms, and then can branch out into other things depending on the quality of that attachment. Anything that is not based on genuine attachment first falls into the danger of passion, and should be a red flag for anything that falls on the side of the argument. For example, Disney movies only show the heat of the moment. After the film ends, you can all assume everything is fine. The princess and the prince run off and get married and fuck and have kids and all this other stuff. But in reality, this is not the case. Most relationships that choose to get married after the most relationships that choose to get married after that short amount of time in the real world genuinely don't work out as smoothly as the end of a Disney movie. They still can work, but they cut out all the other stuff that happens in between because it is indeed a movie. And I should be clear, there's nothing wrong with this. Disney sells entertainment. That's their business. They need to sell these things that make shareholders money in an ethical fashion. And they do that, at least for the most part. What is wrong with this is how some of the audience uses the product that they sell. Because passion's a drug, remember? And just like the drugs and the alcohol, just like alcohol and drugs, they can become abusive and detrimental to our states if we can continue to have them insidiously affect our body. This is most true with the relationship with ourselves. Our relationship with ourselves and how we choose to conduct that vessel is perhaps the most important thing that we can do as human beings. Self-love is not self-passion. That would lead to a pretty awful society if it was widely adopted. A society filled with Instagram models and Patrick Batemans is not a good thing. You need to be attached to who you are in order to love yourself. Being a good companion with yourself is much better than being passionate about yourself. If you go after life chasing a meaningful coexistence and peace of mind with who you are, odds are you'll turn out okay internally. If you chase highs within your life just to make it think that you think and seem like to other people that you have a good relationship with yourself, you could potentially ignore what you really need to make you feel like you're actually doing something and not just spinning your wheels. Patrick Bateman was not good at this. Patrick Bateman chased passion, high after high, until he completely lost himself in what he didn't know was the real him, quite literally. He fell into the trap of narcissism, only doing what felt good, instead of doing what was good. He could have sex, but he couldn't have love. He could party all he wanted, but we, he would never be satisfied with it. I mean, shit, he couldn't even kill people and be fine with it. So how do we think that those that do this for a living feel? Trying to one-up yourself at every turn just so people can get a high off your own narcissism would be a really dreadful existence, in my opinion. You cannot rely on something that is strictly passion-driven because nothing like that exists. No love like that truly exists, no matter how much people like to think it does. Again, it comes down to realistic expectations, especially with yourself. You can sometimes indulge your passions of who you are, but it is never a good thing to make them the basis of a relationship. A healthy attachment to yourself is always the proper way to go. Following this, you have to realize that passionate love is nothing more than a highlight reel. You can only have freaky sex so many times before it becomes normal sex. You can only eat so many pieces of chocolate cake before it starts to taste like shit. You can only create so many half-assed business plans before you realize that all of them are indeed ass. This is the diminishing returns of value in effect. Social media is a highlight reel. No one posts their shitty content on pictures in social media. It's a brand. Anything that th Anyone that thinks that's detrimental to your brand would damage the person posting it. No high school athlete would dare post a clip of them being pancaked and scored on in their huddle account. No college coach would want to see that. No one would want to put their failures in the letterhead of their resume. No job recruiter would want that to be the first impression of them. But no matter what you see on a social media profile, a huddle account, or a resume, it's not the whole story. Underneath that surface-level analysis of supposed perfection is the overwhelming amount of data that tells you otherwise. There are a lot of things that don't make the social media profiles. Huddle accounts and resumes that people sweep under the rug. 
No one is immune to it because no one is immune from failure. No one is privileged or above anyone else because no one is perfect. We're all tremendously flawed creatures who, more than likely, are doing the best they can with what they have to offer. So for example, the two greatest team sport athletes in the face of this earth right now, in my opinion, but I don't think this is widely contested, are LeBron James and Patrick Mahomes. LeBron James obviously is a small forward point guard for the Los Angeles Lakers, and Patrick Mahomes is the quarterback for the Kansas City Chiefs. And they're about as close to a human highlight reel as you can ever get. They're two of the most amazing athletes I've ever seen. However, they're far from perfect. LeBron still misses about half of his shots, including about 65% of his three-pointers and 35% of his free throws, which are the easiest shots to make in basketball, not the three-pointers, but the free throws. Patrick Mahomes misses about 35% of the passes he throws. Mahomes has potentially also has potentially the strongest arm of any quarterback that's ever lived, yet his career attempt, yards per attempt is only at a measly 8.4. The long passes you see to Travis Kelsey and Tyreek Hill that place him regularly in the Sports Center top 10 are the tremendous anomalies in the field of largely average and monotonous gameplay. But the reason that LeBron James and Patrick Mahomes are as great as they are are specifically for the reasons above. They don't rely on the one-hit wonders, the passions of their respective sports to define who they are. They do a lot of things, and they do a lot of things quite well. If they hit a breakaway dunk or a Hail Mary, great. But if they don't, great. Their relationship with who they desire to be and what gives them meaning, at least in the context of the sports they play, is intact. And only a fool would register these two individuals in anything but that. On the other hand, Writing strictly on highlight reels, or passions, is just as bad in the opposite direction. For this example, we'll go to a UFC fighter, Joaquin Buckley. Joaquin Buckley is an up-and-coming UFC fighter who scored what is likely to go down as one of the single greatest knockouts in MMA history against Impa Kasangani, which is which was a spinning back kick, like flying whatever, UFC craziness. It was, it was awesome. Look it up on YouTube. It's great. Although this is false that it's the best knockout in the UFC history because there will never be a greater knockout than the Jorge Masvidal, Ben Askren, Flying Knee. Look that up on YouTube too. It still catapulted Buckley into superstardom. It was incorporated into a video by Kanye West. Even the president, Donald Trump at that point, called Dana White to tell him how amazing it was. But that also raised the bar for Buckley super high. Much like passionate love, Buckley's amazing knockout shot him way high where the only place he could likely go was down. So after a very impressive performance against Jordan Wright, Buckley took a shin to the knee from Alessio DiCirico last Saturday and was knocked out just over two minutes into the fight. It shocked the world. The hype train was over. Buckley's chance of getting ranked was, for the moment, derailed. I'm not saying that this is the end of the world for Joaquin Buckley. I'm a big fan of his. The dude can fight. And But this type of thing happens in the UFC. Just ask my hometown hero from Cleveland and UFC legend Stipe Miocic. But if you rely on it too much, passion and one-hit wonder moments that come from it can happen just as much to you as it does to them. So when you set yourself up for major highs, you also set yourself up for major lows. Highs and lows are a part of life, but they should not be your whole life. Your relationship with yourself should be one of stability. You don't want to be bipolar when it comes to dealing with your internal issues and how you portray yourself as a person. Remember, proper attachment takes place when you know what you're attaching to. If you don't know what part of you that is, it will cause significant issues down the line. And finally, it leads to our good friend emotional overcompensation again. Because passion is an emotional overcompensation when you think about it. It's basically taking a peak sense of something and categorizing it as something that should generally not happen. Not to say that certain emotions shouldn't run high sometimes, that wouldn't be natural either. But over -emotion emotional overcompensation, as we covered, can be very, very dangerous. The problem when you take passion into the equation is that it becomes both an enabler and excuse of and for emotional overcompensation. Think about it. 
Follow your passion, people say. They post it on social media and sell it in Bath and Body Works and cute $12 half-price wall signage. It's so baked into the core of our culture that it's almost impossible to tell the vices from the virtues anymore. And so many people take so many aims at it, so much so that they detract from what people actually set out to do. The passion is sexy, remember? And sex sells. Therefore, it would only be natural for other people to think that emotional overcompensation, and therefore passion, is what gets you to where you want to go in life. But more often than not, it does the opposite. It actually hinders you from doing that. Remember our examples of Buckley, James, and Mahomes. There's a clear disparity, at least for right now, of where their strengths and weaknesses come from, and why the methodology of the two always outweighs the methodology of the other. Again, at least for right now, we're hoping that Joaquin Buckley can get back on track. This can lead us down to the path of wanting that shine of passion. We all want the spinning back kick knockout. That's easy. That gets you the shots to getting further, but only temporarily. When you don't take the time to develop the rest of your game, you're only lying to yourself. LeBron just doesn't only throw down breakaway dunks, and Pat Mahomes only doesn't throw 50-yard bombs. They're the complete package, always looking to develop something else. They never lie to themselves, at least in the context of how they can get better in the sport. You cannot be at the, you cannot be at the high of how you live and how you treat yourself forever. Every spoil eventually turns to shit. Self-love in the context of most people is showing yourself appreciation all the time, buying yourself things, patting yourself on the back when it's inappropriate to do so, all that jazz. However, passion encourages that behavior simply because it rides a high of emotional overcompensation about how your perception of how you think you should feel, not about how you should actually feel. Because every high has to come down. Eventually, the spurt of lies that you tell yourself have to stop if you truly want to get better. Love isn't always romantic. The research that we've cited already proves that. Stable and companionate love is the right version if you need to practice through yourself. Once you accept and not lie about the conditions that you find yourself in, then you can quote-unquote love yourself enough to fix it, as our friends Drew Barrymore and Mark Manson once said. But being honest is hard. Lying to yourself is easy. So naturally, we need a framework for that too. So compassionate and stable love, particularly in the form of self-love, is the way that we need to go and where we need to reach. But, as you've discussed, this is not always an easy thing to find in the world of passion and activity that can distract us from what is actually meaningful. What is actually meaningful can be passionate, but is not often the case, especially over the long term when passion can dip as drastically as it does in the research. Self-acceptance, not self-love and self-esteem, is the way to correctly navigate life. You cannot accept a lie because lies are what distinguishes growth from stagnation. Things don't get better when you simply masquerade what needs to get better from what you simply want to cover up. True growth comes from seeing yourself in whole, blemishes and all, accepting those faults, and then working on loving yourself enough to improve them, should they actually be detrimental to your state of being. It is here where the psychologist's companionate love comes in. You cannot truly love yourself, love something that you want to change drastically. Therefore, self-hatred is not the answer when you see faults in yourself either. However, not caring enough is about improving the faults that you do have is the opposite side of the coin. That's just letting yourself go to waste, which is not good. A good conclusion, per usual, is a balance of the extremes. Remember, no emotional overcompensation is good in most cases. Loving yourself begins with accepting yourself, and then becoming a companion with that self so you can love it enough to weather the storms of life and fix it when it needs to be tweaked. Just like a good partner in life, a family member, or a friend, you must take them as they are, to use the great Kurt Cobain as wisdom. And then, after you do this, you must embark on the journey with them, adjusting as the roads of life take you down different paths into different places. The first reason why companionate love prevails is it forces you to create unconditional trust. And it's been a while since I've talked about this, and I've never talked about it in my podcast format so far, so I'm going to review it. 
Unconditional trust, in my opinion, is the undercurrent of love. Before you can make the leap to say that you love someone, you must trust them just as much as you want to convince yourself that you love them. I came up with this theory before I encountered Haidt and the other researchers, but I think that what they say runs on a simpler track to what I say. And as with Haidt, there must be a relationship before you can get to that point where you admit that you're farther than normal devotion to one another. That relationship, like any relationship, is built off of the backbone of trust. Trust, the all-assuming, unquantifiable metric that forms the stability of two human souls, must be the undercurrent of all loving relationships. With no trust, there is no way that the next step after trust, whatever that may be, can be taken. We need time to build trust with ourselves and our relationships through repeated actions over time, because trust, like Rome, is not built in a day. We need to create that relationship with ourselves by laying out trusting actions one brick at a time so that we can walk down the road we build as true companions. Actions that, over time, will lead to acceptance, which will lead to companionship, which will then lead to companionate love. With passionate love, and passion in general, this can be uprooted rather quickly. You ever heard of a crime of passion before? So this is, this is Lorena Bobbitt cutting her husband's dick off. And fun fact, he later formed a band called The Severed Parts and appealed in a biographical porno to pay for his medical bills. I think that's hilarious. I don't know if any of you guys think that's funny, but I think that's funny. This is Anakin Skywalker helping to form the Galactic Empire to get his wife medical treatment that she may or might not have needed. Hitler and the Nazis were like this, as was every totalitarian group in history, ranging from Mussolini's Italy to Hirohito's Japan to Stalin's China or Stalin's Russia and Mao's China. Stalin did not go to China. But because our passions, much like the fast-feeling brain that shoots themselves through our body, can sometimes be wrong, it's generally not a wise idea to saw your fifth appendage, husband's fifth appendage off with a knife, kill billions of people, or form groups of terroristic ideological psychopaths in order to get what your passions tell you that you think you should have. That just makes you an asshole. There is no trust there. What we perceive as trust is merely based on an emotional overcompensation, usually by blind anger or fear that has shaky evidence at best to back up the validity of that emotion. Trust provides that stability, and the only way that trust can be fostered is through genuine companionship and the grace of acceptance. When trust is not the undercurrent of love, it is most likely being propped up by something else. And, when not properly examined, that, someone, that something else is properly another emotion can be overcompensated the moment it becomes convenient for you to do so. This type of instability is nothing to envy with other people or with yourself. You need to exert the right amount of control over your emotions while simultaneously ramping up your internal sense of trust. In order to fix yourself, you first need to trust yourself. That is how you avoid the traps of passion, because, indeed, passion cannot thrive in an area where trust is there to thwart it. Trust, therefore, requires the opposite of passion, and the opposite path of passion in order to get to that point. That path of trust is instigated first in the slow brain, which is instigated in what we take a moment to check ourselves before we wreck ourselves, like Ice Cube once said. Love is one of the few things that can override many things that rational people do, particularly when it comes to the all-self- consuming lying and narcissism that we seem becoming all too common nowadays, as we've covered so far in this podcast. In the use of our slow brains to figure out how to navigate our relationship with ourselves, we will check our passion towards ourselves at the door of our favor of companionship. The reason is that passion happens quickly, but companionship takes a long time. In other words, it's slow. Slow begets slow, and slow is a necessity when dealing with complex emotions and things such as the relationship with ourselves. Nothing is, a bad, is as bad or as worse as it seems in the grand scheme of things. However, nothing is probably ever as good or better either. It's a paradox we have trouble accepting. We love the good times to be better than they actually are as much as we hate the bad times for the being as worse as we, what we perceive them to be. This skewed reality in our brains, when left unchecked, can deliver a flurry of emotional overcompensations that sink us in no time flat if we are not careful. 
In the use of our slow brains, we can see the bigger picture. We can see the lies before we tell them to ourselves. No emotional overcompensation can be felt or sustained on a bedrock of stability. Everything is in balance, so we cannot overcorrect towards one side of narcissism and selfishness versus emptiness and lonerism. In the current state of the world, where love is to be had with ourselves and with others, there are choices that must be made in how we face those alternatives. We can choose to face lies that we tell ourselves in order to reinforce false positive emotions that lead to narcissism, or we can embrace them and enable those same emotions. The choice, as always, is ours. When you become obsessed with looking and feeling positive and quote-unquote loving yourself, you eventually ignore, casually, all the things that truly get in the way of what stability and self-love looks like. Algorithms, influencers, and pop culture all portray a false sense of improvement and security within yourself that may or may not be there if you really look at yourself honestly. Remember, self-esteem is bullshit. It's not about feeling better. It's, about, it's not about hoping to be better. It's about making the definitive decision to be and do better. That is what will make the difference. That is self-love. Everything involved with all else is self-lies. And remember, in the extreme, self-lies lead to Patrick Bateman. And while he may pull a lot of hot women, he also pulls them in to cut them apart with a chainsaw. And you probably shouldn't be that guy. So guys, thank you for tuning in this week. We will be back next week with another new episode. And as always, own the day and open your mind. Thank you for listening. Have a good one. Hopping, stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?